HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink, brought to you live on heritageradionetwork.org. I am Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink, and also the beverage director of Del Anima Lartuzzi and Anfora in the West Village, and uh, the brand new La Picha restaurant over in the East Village. Um, I'm extremely excited today. You know, I've, we've been we've been taping here over at Roberta's for. Uh, for a little while now, and uh, the last few weeks I've been coming through and, and just noticing, oh wow, Roberta's is kind of stepping up their game. There's like there's more interesting wine. There's there's some really cool artisanal grappa on the back bar. Like something's going on here. So uh, I'm really just absolutely excited and, and enthusiastic to be here with uh, Amanda Smeltz, the beverage director of uh, the brand new beverage director of Roberta's. She's one month in. Thanks it's so true. much. <laughs> Hi, Joe. Hi, welcome, welcome. Uh, so Amanda, I'm just uh, curious as to what's going on. I'm noticing that, that you know some of my really favorite producers, like you have Palo Bello wines, um, yeah, some uh, some some really cool artisanal. The Capo Villa Grappa is probably the only real artisanal or one of the few artisanal grappas that we can see here in the states. So. Yeah, totally. Um, well, I think Roberta's is an amazing, um, amazing sort of stomping ground for. Um, experimental stuff and for things that are a little off the beaten path um, while also nodding to technique and tradition the cooking is a lot like that here the the pizza is like that you know people come in and they're like oh pizza and beer and then they realize that you know holy crap these are this pizza isn't quite normal pizza you know so I think um, there's an opportunity here with every avenue whether it's beer or spirits or whatever to have things that are a little off the beaten path but that also really nod to things that are well made um, so there's some, I'm starting to filter some producers in who I treasure personally very much. And so who were some of the first producers you're like, I can't wait to have these on the list? Well, I was super stoked because Bayo was already here, but I really want to bring in oh. some of his, um, 
some of his sort of more obscure wines. Um, some orange wine has, for, for whatever reason, a, a really big hold on the staff. So I'm looking forward to um, bringing in La Stopa, um, who are female winemakers out of Emilia Romagna that I really like. Um, and I'm, I'm actually going to move the list away from all Italian and into the domestic kind of world. Again, the domestic grappas you saw, but um, there are some winemakers in California I cherish, Donkey and Goat, um, Katuri, some other guys that I plan on bringing around. So, Very cool. Yep. Uh, I'm going to ask you about uh, those domestic producers in a minute, but you you, you uh, distinguish that the Lastopa wines are made by a female winemaker. Mm-hmm. Do you find do you do you feel that that's important, or is that a particular interest of yours? Yeah, it's pretty crucial. Um, I mean, given given the history of land owned, land ownership in Europe, um, and just you know general sort of gender issues. Um, having females who own their own plots of land and also are vinifying themselves, um, I think really does come to bear because, uh, you know, it's it's my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that um, genetically women have a really strong chemical sense um, with smell. They have, so I hear, supposedly stronger senses of smell than men. So this is like a big deal in Burgundy right now that there are female winemakers who are coming out and making these really refined wines. Um, and the men are sort of like, you know, give us our land back, this kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's pretty crucial. I, it's nice to see the whole wine world kind of being gender equalized with some time. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I always, I, I, that, that's something that you hear a lot in the, in the wine industry that women have a, uh, a more in tune sense of, of smell. And, um, I didn't know if that was a folklore or I, I, it, it may well be. I'm sure that there are plenty of men who have incredibly sensitive noses clearly but it's still kind of it's fun to bat around i suppose you know know what i always uh suppose is that um a lot of times being a good wine taster is not just having a really sensitive nose but being able to articulate what what it is that Mm -hmm. you're that you're feeling Mm -hmm. there's there's a there's a thought there's a ability to link up what you encounter sort of in the sensate way with how you verbalize and how you're able to name. I think a lot of what people get intimidated by with wine is vocabulary. A lot of it is just like, how do I talk about what I'm sensing? Because everyone has a nose and everyone has a very keen nose. Um, You know, we're kind of like dogs that way. But the difference is that we can articulate about what we're smelling and dogs can't do that. You know what I mean? So yeah, vocabulary and, and linking things up is a crucial skill. I believe that perhaps women are more in tune with what they're <laughs> feeling. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations, <laughs> but you know, all right. That's interesting. Who are some of your other favorite female wine producers? Oh man, I have, I have yet to meet her. Um, but there's a woman who runs a winery called Whitethorn who totally changed my mind about Chardonnay in California. Um, making a really restrained, I haven't seen it for a while. I think it's such small production. Um, making a really restrained um, Chardonnay that's just like I wouldn't have known. You know what I mean? Um, about that grape. Um, who are others that I really like? Oh, the um, Lini Lambrusco producer. I, I have a big um, boner for Emilia Romagna right now, too, so that's like <laughs> where my eyes are at. But um, the Lini producer. Um, and, and I have one for Alicia Lini. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, then we're in, we're in tandem here. Um, her wines are tremendous. Um, and again, sort of like returning me to a, a belief in Lambrusco and the whole, um, and that whole style of wine. Um, yeah, there are, there are far more yeah. out there. I believe, um, Moray's Burgundies are made by a female winemaker and they're stunning. They're like, mm-hmm. knock it out of the park. Um, oh, yeah. also, um, and I'm going to blank on her name as well. Nicole, her first name is Nicole in the Jura making wines from Montpogo. 
Um, she has a plot mm. of land called L'Etoile that has little starfish fossils in the soil. Um, she is like amazing, amazing. There's so much exciting stuff happening yeah, there. Yeah, it's cool. And my favorite's uh, Elisabetta Foradori. To me, she does no wrong. Yeah. She's yeah. just the, she's just the best. And then so who are some of these uh these domestic producers? I know we we share uh, a mutual friend with mm-hmm. Jared Brand of Donkey and Goat. Yeah, and, Jared and Tracy are amazing. I think they've done so much for um Bay Area, Bay Area wine culture. They they've got such a strong. I was out in San Francisco for a couple months this summer and they've got such a strong presence there, you know. Um there's a natural wine bar in Oakland and they like, you know, they're there regularly and um they just, they're just so cool. They just started doing it in the negociant style in a garage. And now, you know, a couple of years later with a couple singular Syrahs, they've established themselves as, um, you know, kind of pioneers, but without, without like setting up to do so, I think necessarily. So they're rad. Um, I went and saw Tony Katuri, whose wines are very polarizing. I know, um, in the fall and fell completely in love if I wasn't already, um, really, really, you know, it's in the middle of Sonoma, his house. Mm-hmm. And so, you drive up there and there's massive redwoods and it's really hard to get around the trees. The roads are so thin and um, and you see all of these incredibly, impeccably clean vines everywhere. It's Sonoma, you know, there's to- there's tons of vines and they're all very well trained, very clean. And then you sort of like turn the bend and get onto Tony's land and there's it's just like overrun. <laughs> there are cats and dogs everywhere and like, and the Zinfandel that's on his estate is you can hardly see that it's grapes because there's so much other crap growing along with it. And it's gnarled and old and really wild looking. And, uh, I was really kind of moved by that. Um, so those are, those are two that I definitely have my eyes on. So how do you, how do you distinguish, uh, that like overgrown vineyard? Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you distinguish the, the level of, lack of care and laziness <laughs> oh with, my God. with beautiful, you know, polyculture. If Tony Katuri were in this room, he'd probably run us over with one of his Harleys. Um, <laughs> how, do, how do I distinguish? I think, um, I think the ones who are doing it really, really well, I think of Olivier Umbrecht, who isn't, to my knowledge, working like biodynamically or anything, but I've heard him talk about the way he cares for his vines in, in the field. And it's, it's so incredibly attentive, but I know he also doesn't do a lot of the more, um, contemporary like vine training or or um you know treatments some some of the more scientific processes he doesn't engage with many of them and you know little anecdotes about going out to warm the grapes at night when it's getting particularly cold with tiny fires you know like this stuff is i mean that's clearly a level of care that um i don't know it's like it's like raising children or something um I, you know, I'm sure that there are winemakers who try to make wine just by like letting things go totally nuts and then they don't check in. Right. Um, but I don't think the good ones are like that. So the more care that you have in the vineyard, the less you have to worry about in the winery. Yeah. yeah. Good fruit, good wine, that kind of thing. Good fruit. So this way, you know, if you, if you raise your kids, you don't have to, well, you don't have to worry about them in college. They're not going <laughs> to exactly, yeah. go all Lindsay Lohan exactly. on you. Good, yeah. good babies, no Lindsay Lohan. That's, <laughs> I think. <laughs> So you've been through um, a couple of openings as well. John mm-hmm. Dory, the Breslin. Yep. Um, we just we just went through our opening at La Picho, so this topic's fresh on on my mind. Man, Can you it describe is a special time in the restaurant yeah, world? Describe what it's like, so that uh, that my friends and, and my girlfriend know why I don't <laughs> respond to their. Phone well, this calls. one goes <laughs> out to Joe's lady. Um, it is a really hard time. Opening a restaurant is a really really hard time. It's incredibly invigorating. Um, it's very different when you are involved in um, ownership or management too, um, because you are you're asked to design the ship 
like you're you're going to run the thing. You have to kind of set the tone early on. And um, that can be incredibly challenging when you're just trying to make sure you have enough silverware for service. You know, like there's there are basic functionalities that really consume a lot of attention. Um, you know, when you're opening a restaurant as a wine guy or a som or whatever, and you're like, where's my wine? You know, or like, we don't have a bin system figured out. Or what are people even going to drink here? Do we have the proper glassware? You know, um, uh, we only have four burgundy glasses and they break every shift. You know, this stuff. It's a... Uh, it's just a mess for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it takes many months for a restaurant to find its um, groove and they're organic things because they're very people-based. So they, you know, they need a lot of continued attention, much like grapes. Um, they, they just, they're never done. The work's never done. We were just talking about how you could work 12 hours and look at your watch and be like, oh my God, I didn't do any, any of the things I wanted to do. I guess that's common, but yeah. So, um, I mean, I know at the Breslin, it was uh, it was a couple months before I really felt like I knew what was going on at all, you know. So um, were, were there some wines there that you guys were sure, like, oh, people are totally going to drink this, and then and you couldn't sell them at all, and vice versa, yeah, were there man, wines it, people were just was, asking for? It was for? funny, because they didn't really have a wine director at first, and my, my friend Carlo Zuski took the program over, and then about a weekend was like, holy crap, this is so big, we need another person. So I was like, well, you know. I've done wine stuff. I will. I can be a psalm for you. And we found that there was a whole back inventory of wine that just um, maybe lacked a little inspiration. And um, you know, kind of. But <laughs> I remember the initial review said standard Oregon Pinots, um, which which was a little bit of a, a, a dig. I think I don't know because Oregon makes beautiful wine. Um, but there's just, just so much back inventory to work through, and that's a thing that I'm seeing at Roberta's too. Even though this restaurant's been here for four or five years, it's like okay, there's someone had an idea of what wine is appropriate for the restaurant, and now that there are other people with their hands on it, we have to we have to see if we can proceed with um, some personality, you mm-hmm. know, and and to really back farmers and winemakers who we think are doing a tremendous job, and that can take some time. You got to sell the stuff, you know. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a ton of work. It's a lot of research, but God, it's fun research, you know? Yeah. And so what, what do you think was the impetus here um, to step things up? Is it, does it have anything to do with Blanca opening and the extra yeah, attention? Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think it, I think that ball really got rolling about a year ago when we had a, um, here at Roberta's a very kind and rightfully so review um, from Mr. Sam Sifton um, that just, exploded the attention to this restaurant and it, and it was a tribute to the quality of the cooking that's happening here. Um, you know, head chef Carlo and, and, uh, chef de cuisine, Max Sussman, they, they just do an amazing job. Um, I had a buddy come and visit just a, a couple weeks ago, new to the city. And he was like, it's amazing to see the kinds of techniques that are happening in the cooking out in Bushwick. And I was like, yeah, man, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to happen in a, in, you know, the upper West side. It doesn't have to happen in Columbus circle. You know, it, that kind of cooking can happen anywhere, especially when you have passionate people. Um, you can make it work in a really, in a really janky space, you know? <laughs> um, so I think given that attention and given, you know, the new, the new project at Blanca, um, which is bizarre, you know, like a tasting menu restaurant all the way out here. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, just kind of unprecedented, I think, especially for the area, but also for what people think of when it comes to that formal, of dining. So there's an opportunity here to continue to massage the wine program along with that. And as people are 
um, spe- spending a lot of time continuing to pay attention to the cooking and so on here, they're also beginning to really pay attention to what mm-hmm. they're drinking. And so you said the staff's really excited about orange wine right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I They've got that, the greatest tastes. <laughs> <laughs> that... Uh, you know, at, at our restaurants, at least, whatever whatever the crew's exci- most excited about is what we sell. Because I'm not selling, you know, wine to every single table. Of course. How do you get them excited about wines that you're interested in? Man, they do it themselves for the most part. They, there's an amazing, like... The, I, it's so funny. The, hip, the hipster staff at Roberta's, they're not, hip, they're not hipsters at all here. And I don't know if that's, like, <laughs> a recent development. They're actually really savvy, really lovely people. Um, and they, they have great taste. They've got young sort of... Um, I don't know, eccentric tastes, uh, which is cool. They don't have like an old traditionalist framework um, when it comes to thinking about wine. And so they're down to try whatever. You can put old Barolo in front of them or you can put crazy Roussan Marsan with skin maceration from Berkeley in front of them. And they, they regard it with the same attention, you know. So I think all you have to do is assist with vocabulary. Um, do a little digging and find the stuff that's worth being excited about. And that's, it catches like wildfire, you know. Um, so it's a good staff for that to happen with. All right, and on that note, we're going to do a little bit more digging when we get back (laughs) from break. Um, You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to Cursed by Controller on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. All right, and we're back with uh, In the Drink here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Joe Campanelli here with Amanda Smeltz, the beverage director at 
Roberta's. Um, and we're back. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, about your book that's about to come out in uh, in February. Amanda's also a poet. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about what you have working up? Yeah, sure. Um, normally, I'm very bashful about this subject, so I can't believe I offered it up. Uh, <laughs> but um, I have a book of poems coming out that's entitled Imperial Bender um, on a small press uh, publisher based out of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, they are super rad they're called Typecast Publishing. Um, they're an imprint that focuses very much on design. They do all letterpress publications. Their books are absolutely beautiful. They're like art objects themselves. Um, and they have published a couple. Po- they're relatively new, just about five years old, to my understanding. Um, but they've published a couple poets whose work I really admire. And so my book got picked up by them, and it is in process right now. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, about the subject material? <laughs> Man, it's hard. Uh, when, you know, you title something Imperial Bender, and, and it, yeah, I, I should hope some things come to mind. There's a lot, <laughs> a buddy of mine, um, a bartender friend of mine, sort of read an uh, early version of the manuscript, and um, he was made a joke about the first poem. He said, Smelts, you should have just titled it Booze in all caps. And I was like, well, I guess that is a main thread that runs through it, huh? I mean, it's hard when you work in restaurants and the beverage industry and you spend a lot of time having your imagination captured by wine and winemaking and the um, the geography of it and the anthropology of it. It's hard to not have that seep in, you know, to a lot of the things that you do. Um, so in Imperial Bender, there are definitely a ton of references to um, different parts of the world where wine is made and different aspects of restaurant life. And um, But a lot of it is about, uh, you know, my relationships and different different things that I was going through in the period in which the book was being written. So, And how do you find that your interest as, uh, in poetry and, and as, a, as a writer affects your professional career? It affects it a lot, believe it or not. It's sort of indirect, but there, there's overlap. Um, an old friend of mine who was one of the first people to get me into wine and to start teaching me about it said, this was the thing that caught me, said that wine is anthropology. Um, and by this, he meant as you come to learn how these grapes grow, where they grow and who tends them and then who brings them into being as wine, you realize that there's an intensely human element to it. Um, and that as you get, as you, as your knowledge grows, you begin to see stylistic imprints of, of the human hands that either raise the fruit or, um, tend it, you know, or who, or who make the wine or who distribute and import the wine, you know, um, or then people like you and I who who pick things to try to share with other people, um, you just realize there's there's so much to do with humans <laughs> in this grape and the fruit, and that comes to bear because in in poetry you're constantly thinking about your way well, you're constantly thinking, and b you're constantly thinking about people I think and the way the mind works and and the way it's influenced by the environment around it. And I cut, you come to see a, a funny link between people and grapes. Um, as cheesy as that sounds, there, there comes to be overlap. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really curious. To, I think I know the answer to, to this question, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. Um, this, the idea of terroir and that wine should taste like yeah. it's from a specific place. I, I personally feel that the human element or the anthropological element, maybe in, in your words, would is is a part of that terroir Absolutely. equation. Absolutely. Humans are terroir, too. You know, we... we very, I, I, we don't, I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking about it as Americans necessarily, but we very much are a product of where we come from, you know, and what ground we're raised on. Um, 
we are like grapes in that way, you know, and if, if a winemaker comes in with a very heavy hand and does a lot of stuff to, you know, a lot of junk <laughs> to the grapes, it can turn out bad. Um, sometimes it can be fine. Um, and then there are some grapes that do really well when the winemaker is super hands off. I think people are like that, you know, and, um, our childhoods are like that and our places where we're born and raised are like that. And, um, our cultures are, you know, I feel like landscape is super important to people. Um, and I, I, I know that grapes are the same way cause you know, we're all sort of from the same dirt. So. And tell us about a little bit about the landscape out here in, in Bushwick. What do you find that people are, are drinking? God, I love it. For? <laughs> what, are, what, um, what's the landscape like in Bushwick? Well, they ask for beer first and then after they're done, uh, drinking beer, um, People are adventurous out here. I think um, people who live here, especially people who have been here for a while, like not who aren't recent um, implants, are totally happy being on the fringe. Um, this is, you know, the super industrial neighborhood um, appeals to some. It appeals to me very much. And as such, they're totally happy to explore things that are fringe themselves, you know. Um, they're, it's, it's a young, it's a fairly young area. And so there's, um, like I said, not necessarily a ton of traditionalist approaches to wine, which is a bummer because, you know, you miss out on Burgundy and Barolo and stuff, but, uh, but then you also explore these sort of unknown pockets. And, um, I think there's a really big attentiveness to that in this neighborhood and it's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Uh, is there anything that you've seen yet that you're, that you're super jazzed about that, uh, that you haven't been able to to move, and for me, it's it's sherry, and we'll, we'll talk oh, about I sherry know. after. I, I wish <laughs> people would drink more sherry. It's it's sherry week. We're having a, a sherry dinner tonight at at Le Picho. I think there's three seats left uh, <laughs> with Lou Stow and Fernando de Castilla, cool. but um, but we can't. Sell, it's so hard to sell it at the restaurants, no matter how much I love it, dude. I was just at Hearth and Terroir last night with. Uh, some friends of uh, some friends of friends and they are they're working in like very commercial wineries in california and uh i was like you know let's get a glass or two of sherry and they uh, you know immediately had the standard reaction which is you know gross that stuff is cloying and awful and my grandmother drinks it and of course that was my response too years ago when i first encountered it and then you come to find that there's an incredible range of varieties so i got like four different glasses and sat it down was like okay we're gonna do this we're gonna have a small sherry flight right now um, and they loved it. You know, they, um, there was a Valdespino, uh, one of their particular Olorosos that I tasted with them and they, they just couldn't believe it. They're like, it smells like maple syrup. It smells like it's going to be, you know, caramel coated walnuts and it's dry as a bone. I'm like, that's, that's the beauty of this thing, right? It's super complex. Um, without and that's someone in the industry who didn't, who didn't know that Sherry yeah. was Oh yeah. This right. is, this is a guy working in vineyards who had no idea, you know, um, yeah, that so sherry, sherry definitely, but whatever. I'm bringing it in here anyway. We're gonna we're gonna make it happen. Um, grappa is so hard, which mm-hmm. is again such a bummer because it's a uh, man. Is that cool booze? It's just people are super scared by having had lousy, you know, stuff of it, and it, you know it is fire water. You have to be okay with high octane, high octane booze. Um, yeah, and then there are just there are just some wines that don't get the kind of love that they should. You know, I I think Paolo Bea is one of the most inspired winemakers alive maybe. And, uh, Sagrantino is kind of a scary grape. Um, and the tannins in his wines can be a little bit alarming to people. So that's why we have his sort of entry level blend Mm -hmm. here, um, to give the less, the least intimidating. I mean, people don't believe me when I'm like, I'm chatting with guests and like, now listen, like this wine will 
actually be a dragon and attack your teeth. Like, you gotta go with me here. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. And then they taste it, and they're like, oh, holy cow. We Okay, maybe we should have, you know, maybe a Pinot would have been the better answer or something. Um, you know, so there are, there are wines that it's a harder time to... Uh, You've got about 45 seconds on the restaurant floor to explain to people what they are and why they might like them, and then they want to go back to their dinner, you know? So some things stay in the cellar for a while. Um, but uh, it's a good task. It's a good challenge. Hey, guys, we actually got a Twitter question I want to pipe in with from a guy named Doug. He wants to ask Amanda, is it hard avoiding having a wine list top-heavy with Italian in a place like Roberta's? Uh, yes. So um, part of that is that uh, the previous wine director was building a really beautiful um, list of all Italian wines. And I think that comes from the kind of uh, traditional notion of, you know, it's pizza. You drink Chianti, Um, uh, you know, pizza and red wine, pizza and Lambrusco. I can't tell you how much Lambrusco we sell, which is cool because it means I get to have awesome Lambrusco in here. But it's a lot of old perceptions about what goes with pizza prevail. Um, but like I was saying before, it's not, it's not standard Italian food here by any means. And it's not, um, it's not standard pizza by a long shot. So standard pizza pairings kind of don't hold. Um, however, the wines of Italy are so diverse and varied from region to region. It seems mile to mile, town to town, that it is so hard not to be fully in love with them. Um, they're fascinating and, and the grape varietals are fascinating and I find myself needing to stop buying them because they're so great. Um, but I also have a passion for domestic wine, and I think that's got a place at Roberta's and in Brooklyn in particular. Um, you know, American wine that's made well with care, with sort of some of the old world techniques. Man, we've got amazing land. Um, so I'm working on it. I'm working on restraining my Italian hand and, and uh, moving other parts of the world forward here. It just it can take a second. <laughs> Wow, very cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the question. I think that might be our first uh, Twitter question to come I'm through. I'm so into it. <laughs> what's what's the uh, what's the handle? Is, uh, sorry, Doug Trapasso, which is at Demi Love. Everyone follow at Demi Love. And <laughs> Doug, say, you're going to get so many follows say today. Nice things to at Demi Love. He's a cool guy. Uh, all right, uh, we have just a just a few more minutes. Um, something that that we like to do here um, is do a little quick rapid fire question, and basically, I'm going to give you uh, a scenario, and you're going to tell me what would be your ideal wine in that scenario. I'm into it. You're into it. Okay, so when. Uh, when I saw you this morning, um, <laughs> walking through Roberta's, uh, you were you were enjoying your uh, your Murray's bagel. So delicious. <laughs> Does can, Murray's have a Twitter handle? Can we get Murray's on the line? If you were if you were to have any wine with a Murray's uh, a Murray's bagel, what would you have? Oh man, um, <laughs> it depends. If you're having the jalapeno cream cheese, probably probably not much or dessert wine. Um, <laughs> If I, with the bagel that I was having today, which was a plain bagel with scallion cream cheese, I would say probably champagne. And I'm particularly liking the Peu Simonet champagnes right now. Super clear, singing, uh, singing clarity. Um, not a lot of dosage, really restrained champagnes, but perky and awake. That is what I need in the morning is to be perky and awake with champagne. (laughs) (laughs) So how about if you're, uh, you're in a park or, or lying on a hill reading a book of poetry. Oh, la-ti-da. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do that every it's not, day. It's not that romantic. It really isn't. Um, man, probably probably Sherry. Probably Fino. Really nice Fino. Fino, something that is... A uh, little, little saline, not too aggressive. Uh, coastal. 
Yeah. All right. And how about uh, a party in a, a party in Bushwick in some industrial space that's converted to some to a really cool non hipster party? <laughs> <laughs> Lambrusco, Lambrusco all day. Lini Lambrusco all day, every day. Awesome. Yeah. Party wine. Well. Um, thank you so much, Amanda <laughs> Smeltz. We, uh, what, what a pleasure this has been to chat with you. And, uh, I am just so excited. I've been getting more excited every week, just walking through and, and doing the show. Oh, that's and, great to hear. Thanks, Joe. Uh, seeing some of my favorite wines. So, uh, come and, uh, come check out Roberta, say hi to Amanda and, uh, we'll talk to you, uh, next week on In the Drink. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.